Have you ever received a letter through the door that is marked to be opened by the addressee only? Have you ever received a letter like that? Sometimes, if you're not the addressee, it can be tempting to open it. You know, I know there's some nosy ones amongst us. Uh, have you, just by a show of hands, if the addressee's away, what do you do? Do you open it? Hands up if you open the letter. Some people being honest, which is nice. Or maybe it could, be, it could be a bill or a final warning. Maybe it needs to be opened. Well, imagine if you open, uh, a letter comes through your door that is marked with the phrase, to be opened by the one who deserves to do so. Or to be opened by the one who is worthy. Well, in a busy house, that could cause a few problems. Who gets to open the letter? How would you decide who the worthy one is? How would you decide who is the one who deserves it? Maybe you could play a game, have a competition. Maybe it's a trick question. The one who says I'm worthy, maybe isn't worthy. Well, we've been in the series in Revelation and in chapter 4, we're kind of, this is a scene through John's eyes. We're seeing through his eyes a vision. And in our vision, he's seen God on the throne in chapter 4. But as we get into chapter 5 now, he sees in God's right hand a scroll. And the scroll has got writing on both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. But the scroll is almost marked with the phrase, to be opened by the one who is worthy. And so we have a little bit of a problem. So this morning, as we read through this chapter 5 together, we're really going to be looking at those questions. Well, who is the one that is worthy to do so? What does this scroll really mean? What's the, so what is its importance? What's it all about? And hopefully, we'll begin to get some answers and see what it has huge impact for us as a people. So if you've got a Bible, let's turn. We're going to, open, uh, we're going to read Revelation 5 together. It will appear on the screen as well. Starting at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne, a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out toward the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, sound with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour. Glory and might 
forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come and study these scriptures together. Lord, we pray may we be enlightened. We pray may we see more of who you are as we read and look at these scriptures together. Lord, we pray may we be brought to a place of awe and worship and wonder as we spend time gazing on who you are, the worthy one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This passage centers around a scroll. There's writing on both sides, which is uncommon, and it's sealed. And on it are things really known only to God, but we kind of know that they're really God's decrees, his plans and purposes, his blessing for creation, his plans, how he's going to bring about justice for the oppressed, how he's going to bring about righteousness, how he's going to bring the renewal of all things. But in order for these things to be revealed and fulfilled, the seal needs to be opened. But the seal is sealed with seven seals. There's a problem. The scroll cannot be opened. And so we find ourselves in a bit of a tricky situation. And one of the the mighty angels proclaims, who is worthy to open the scroll? The, The question goes out, who can really do this? Who can really take this scroll and open it? And it Reminds me, actually, of two things. One of the things was when I was a kid, we used to play out and play football on the street. And uh, some people, not me, because, you know, I was decent, would kick the ball over someone's fence. And it would go over the back garden of someone's fence. And that would be a problem because someone's got to go and get it. Now, there was this one house that used to go over quite a bit. And the guy that lived there was this older guy. And when you're kids, your imaginations run wild. All sorts of rumours about this bloke. Someone said, I've seen him with a shotgun. Someone else says that if you go in his garden, you know, he locks you away forever. Someone said he makes the kids eat a football. You sort of think, where have these rumours come from? All, of course, untrue. But it meant that when the question goes out, who's, who's going to go and get the football? People would look at their feet. No one would raise their hand. It would be silent. No one was, felt that they was up to the task to go and do that. It also reminds me, even last night, I, I was watching one of the Avengers films on the telly, and there's a character, four who has this hammer, and they all try to, it's kind of, it, whoever holds the hammer really is ruling his kingdom, and they try to, different characters try to pick it up, and none of them can pick it up. And then he stands up and he picks it up with ease. And they say, how come you could pick it up? And he says, because I'm worthy to do so. But no one else was. Heaven falls silent. All of the earth falls silent. There was no one who's gone before, not Moses or or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or, or Solomon or David or Peter or Paul or John himself. No earthly king or queen has gone before, no current ruler. No one was worthy to go to the Father and take this scroll from him. The Father himself is worthy. He can, of course, can open the scroll, but he's given dominion over to creation. He's looking for an earthly king, an earthly ruler who can join him. He's on a two-seated throne, and he's looking for a child of Adam who will come and rule on the throne with him. But there is no one who seems up to the task. And when the reality of this dawns on John... When he realised that it can't be opened, that justice can't be brought, that God's kingdom plans can't be brought about, he breaks down and weeps. He breaks down and he weeps. You ever had a moment of realisation about something? You ever had a moment when something suddenly dawns on you, you thought things were going to go one way or things were going to happen and suddenly it falls away? 
it can leave you feeling in a really dark place. Reality can strike. You break down and cry and you lose hope. Well, John loses hope here. And when we lose hope, it's dangerous. It takes us to a dark place. There's tears and pain, mourning. In fact, it's right for John to mourn here. It's right. Sometimes it's right in our lives. There's seasons when it's right to mourn and there's right that there's tears. But hear this, friends. In the midst of his tears, he's weeping at this reality. He hears a voice. He hears a voice of one of the elders who says, weep no more. Behold, take heart. In other words, look, there is hope to come. Suddenly for John, it's like this glimmer. I don't know if you've ever seen like a light in the darkness kind of ebbing away and the light getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It's like the darkness is overtaking it. Well, that's what it's like for John. This light is fading away and he's in tears as he sees it. There's no hope. And then suddenly he hears a voice and the light shines again. There's hope. And then the elder says, there's one who is worthy. There is someone who can open the scroll and he gives him two titles. He says, it is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Two titles that carry huge significance, that carry meaning and promise. He is conquered and he's able to open the scroll. And I want us to spend a couple of minutes or a few minutes just looking at these two titles to dig around them for a little bit because they carry so much significance. And, and to do that, I, I want to use, in fact, a friend of mine uses a great illustration. Where's it gone? Oh, it's over there. He uses a great illustration from the game Guess Who? Hands up if you've ever played the game Guess Who? Well, guess who's like a kid's game? It's a two-player game. You have two of these balls facing each other, and you have to pick. You pick a card at random, one of the characters on it. And your opponent has to guess which character you've got. And so they ask yes or no questions to eliminate some of the options. Do they have hair? Is it a man? Or, you know, is it a man? Do they have a hat on? So different things like that, and you eliminate, and eventually they can hazard a guess at who it is. Well, the whole of... The Old Testament is a bit like a a giant game of messianic guess who. Of the Messiah, the worthy one, slowly being revealed. And, And I'll explain to you how. It starts in Genesis, in the garden. When sin enters the world and things seem without hope, God makes a promise. That through the seed of Eve, the serpent's head will be crushed. The the Messiah will come. So you go, okay, there's going to be a Messiah from Eve. Then a little bit later in Genesis... There's a promise to Abraham. It says, there's a character called Abraham, Abraham. One of your descendants will be the Messiah, will be the worthy one. And it will come not through your oldest son, Ishmael, but through Isaac and your grandson, Jacob. Then Jacob, so we get kind of more clues on our guess who board. Well, Jacob was a character who had 12 sons. And his 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's surprising about this is because Jacob has a prophetic promise. You can read it in Genesis 49. Not his oldest son, Reuben, who would be expected. Or not his most favourite son, Joseph, who we hear lots about. But his fourth child, Judah, who wasn't particularly impressive. As Jacob's dying, he makes a prophetic promise to Judah. He says, Judah, through your tribe, through your people, through your line, the Messiah will come. And then he likens Judah's tribe. He says, your tribe is like a lion. It's like a lioness. It's like a lion's cub. And through this lion, the Messiah, the great king of Israel, will come. More clues. Well, then 800 years pass, and no more clues are given. People are thinking, well, where's this Messiah going to come from? And then Samuel the prophet appears on the scene. 
And he wants to appoint a king of Israel. And so he goes to Jesse and he says, Jesse, one of your sons is going to be a king. Bring him out before me. And they bring out his kings and they bring out his sons. And he says, no, none of these sons. There's another one. Your son, David, the shepherd boy. And he gets David and he says, through this man, the Messiah will come. Through his line, the worthy one will come. Then he surprises David to kind of more clues through David. Then he surprises David when he says, David, not through your oldest son, but through your youngest son, Solomon. The Messiah will come. Okay, wow. More clues. People think it's going to be through Solomon's line. And then Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, he prophesies. He says that from the root of Jesse, from the the stump of Jesse, this Messiah will come. And then we have that famous prophecy that we often read at Christmas in Isaiah 9. that, That the Messiah will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then the final clue comes in Matthew 1, when Jesus arrives on the scenes and they say, Behold, it's the Messiah, the son of David. All of a sudden, Jesus is the only face that matches the clue. That face was in fact George, not Jesus. But it's, but it's Jesus' face is the only one who matches This Revelation 5 is a cry of history. Generations and decades of prophetic promises come through in these two short statements. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, a prophecy of Jacob on his deathbed. He is the root of David, a promise by the prophets. The only face who matches the clues. The game is over. He is the one. He is worthy to open the scroll. And with these titles and with him being revealed, it means that we can wipe away every tear from our eye. It means that for John, when he hears these titles, what was tragedy has now turned to triumph. He will be triumphant. And it's the same for us, friends. Weeping may last for a season. Sometimes it's right that we're in a season of weeping. Maybe you're here today and you're in a season of weeping. You're in a difficult time. You, you feel like your circumstances are not where you want them to be. Well, know this. However much in despair we are, because of Jesus... We are never, we are never without hope because of him. Without Jesus, there's only weeping. Without Jesus, there'll be no marriage supper of the Lamb. There'll be no new heaven and new earth. There'll be no eternal life. Just weeping. But with Jesus, things are entirely different. And we all need Jesus because he's the only one who, regardless of what your circumstances here, brings a deep joy, knowing Holding on to the promise that there will be a day when all things will be renewed and there will be no tears and there will be no sorrow and there will only be everlasting joy. These two statements say that he is the saviour and the deliverer. Weep no more. The worthy one that was promised is here. The seed of Eve, descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, the stump of David has triumphed. The text says he's conquered. He has defeated once and for all. He's capable of receiving the scroll and ruling because of what he has achieved. And after this, so John is hearing these things from the elderly, these titles. And this is in verse 6 that he turns... And don't you think this is amazing? What does, he's maybe expecting to see this huge lion roaring, this person, and he turns, and what does he see? He sees a lamb. John turns, and he sees a lamb. It says in verse 6, Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
He's told about this lion, an animal that makes prey of other animals, that is majestic and mighty and roars. And he turns and he sees a lamb, an animal that is defenseless and weak and vulnerable and is often killed, slaughtered for food and for clothes. Jesus is a lion-like lamb. And I'll show you why that's so important. He's a lion-like lamb because he's one who conquered forever all time. He has defeated Satan. He's defeated the power of sin and death. He is a lion who roars and conquers all things. But only because he was willing to act as a lamb. He achieved all these things, not just because he's a lion, but because he's a lion-like lamb. A lion who gets victory for the tactics of a lamb. Lambs were used for sacrifice. When Jesus is dying and going to the cross, people are thinking, what is he doing? He's being defeated. No, he's using the tactics of a lamb so that he can win like a lion. It's like a paradox. The lion victory comes through being slain like a lamb. But hear this. He's also a lamb-like lion. I'll explain what I mean. When you read the text, you see two things in particular, the way this lamb is described. The first thing is, he is described standing. He's not slumped or in a heap on the ground like he once was. He's not in the grave. He's as low slain. He wears the marks of his sacrifice, but now he's standing next to the throne, risen and victorious. And the second thing is, he's described with having seven horns coming out of his head. Well, that's very, very symbolic because the horns are a symbol of victory and triumph throughout the Bible, throughout Revelation. You read Psalm 18, verse 2, it says, lift up the horn of your salvation. Horns are a symbol of victory. The lamb is victorious here. And seven is a number in the Bible that represents completeness and wholeness. He is completely victorious. He is exalted as the lamb. Jesus is the lion who won the battle, who still fights your battles, who protects you. He's the lion who roars. But he's the lamb who laid down his life and the lamb who saves. He is both. He's the only one who is worthy. And it says in verse 7 and 8 that because of that, he goes to the Father and he takes the scroll. And what do all of the the elders and the living creatures do? Their only response is to fall down and worship him. In fact, in the same way they worship God the Father in chapter 4, they now start to fall down and worship the Lamb. But there's some things that are different. They didn't have any harps before. Now they've all got harps with music and melody. It says that they, now they've got bowls of incense lifting up prayers for the saints. You know what that is? In, uh, kind of, through history, there's been, there's been saints, there's been martyrs, people that have been crying out to God that he would bring justice. It's saying, you know what, their cries of those prayers are being heard, that God will bring about justice and redemption for his saints. And then they begin to sing. In chapter 4, it doesn't say they were singing if you look closely, but now they sing a new song. In the Old Testament, when David takes his throne, there was worship and singing. And now, when the root of David, the one who will rule on his throne, the lamb-like lion of Judah ascends to take the throne and open the scroll, they break out singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection, he has ransomed everyone to God. All people from nations, tribes, whatever your background, whatever your age, race or gender. He has paid the ransom and that is why he's worthy. We 
as humans, we do wrong. A lot of us do. And when we do wrong, we try to make amends for our wrongdoings. You know, we'd like to try and make, you know, appease and make things right. There's certain ways that people like to do that. Some people like to buy flowers, usually blokes. Some people like to buy chocolates, usually blokes. Some people like to buy cards, usually blokes. But, you know, we try to, you get in the picture. But when we do things wrong, we try to make amends. We, you know, we say things like, it's the least I could do to make things right. We want to make things right. Well, in the Old Testament, there's lots of instruction about how we make things right with God. And it often involved animal sacrifice. Abraham presents a sheep in place of his son, Isaac. The people of Israel put blood of the lamb over their doors on the Passover. And that practice is explained. When you read the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11 talks about how the reason God does that is because the life of a creature, God says, is in its blood. And the punishment for sin, to sin against this holy God that we've been reading about, to sin against him, to go against him, the punishment is death. And so so life for life. And so animal sacrifices were used as a payment, as a ransom in those days. It's full in the Hebrew tradition. It's kind of throughout it. And in fact, it's something that we still really have in a lot of films and cultures today. A lot of the films that we enjoy, the kind of storyline is often about vengeance. It's about justice. A lot of the kind of Avengers films and superhero films, it's about someone needs to have justice, there needs to be vengeance for a wrongdoing. Well, if you kind of flick forward to the New Testament and read the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 talks about how the only reason any of these sacrifices were ever acceptable, the only reason that any of these animal sacrifices ever worked is because they pointed ahead to the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God who would sacrifice himself for his people. In other words, it says that only affected because they point to him, that his blood will forgive the worst of sins. That's why in the Gospels, John the Baptist proclaims, Behold, it's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. It's why we call him the Lamb. In Revelation, the Greek phrase Lamb is used 29 times. He is the Lamb who has purchased his people by bearing God's wrath and judgment for our wrongdoing, and he stands in our place. He literally pays the ransom. When I think of ransom, when we think of ransom, we think of someone or something being held and a price being demanded. Well, it's the same here. But the payment demanded for sin is death. And the ransom price is blood. And Jesus paid it all with his own blood when he slaughtered on the cross like a lamb. That is a payment that has the power to redeem and ransom people from Every tribe, language, people and nation. It answers the need of every generation and every culture. Whoever you are, whatever you've done. His blood pays it all. The only reason we're forgiven, the only reason you or I or anyone else can even dare come and approach God and worship him at his throne is because the lamb was slain for us. Because he loves us. That is the foundation of our faith. And not only has he redeemed us, it says in verse 10 that he is making us into a kingdom and priest to reign on earth. He doesn't just want to ransom you. He he gives us a mandate, a, a job to do. He gives us a task. He wants to create an army of kings and priests ready to pray, preach, teach, proclaim, to bless the curse of fire, to protect, to do his work here on earth. To help bring about salvation and justice on this earth now, knowing that there will be a day when all things will be renewed. 
But until that day, we want more of his kingdom to come. So he wants us as his people to help bring his kingdom here. Friends, we have a job to do. Our response is to be grateful heart, but to be mobilized. To be a kingdom and priest who reign on earth. Then John, in verse 11, after hearing all this and seeing all these things, can you imagine being John in these moments? What would your response be? Well, then he looks and he sees another vision. One that's hard to even get our heads around. What is really going on here? The magnitude of what's going on. What it would have sounded like, what it would have seemed like. But let me try and help you understand. I want you to picture a dartboard. Because this is what the scene would have looked like. A bit of a dartboard. In the middle of a dartboard, you've got the bullseye. Well, in the middle of this scene was the throne. And the fatherly enthroned one is on the throne. And next to him is the lamb. And then on kind of the next layer round, you've got the four living creatures who are worshipping. Then you've got the 24 elders on there who have laid their crowns down at his feet who are worshipping. And then beyond that, it says you have myriads and myriads. A myriad is a number that can't be named. And it says there's plural. There's myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Many, many millions of angels around the throne. This dartboard is pretty big. It's huge. And they're worshipping the one who was slain. Or maybe picture a huge rock being thrown into a massive lake. And you see the ripple effect going out and out and out. The ripple's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger till you can't even see it anymore. Or picture yourself, your bird's eye view over a crowd of millions and millions of people. So far that you can't even see where the crowd stops. And right in the middle of this crowd, a Mexican wave starts. And the kind of hands go up and it goes out and out and out. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger till you can't even see. But it's not just one Mexican wave that goes out. It's just continuously flowing out. Hands just lifting, going up and out and out and out and out and out. Millions and millions of people. And then with it comes an eruption of noise, an eruption of sound, an eruption of melody proclaiming, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. Just picture that scene for a moment, friends. Let that sink in. The text names seven things, complete, perfect, that are attributed to him. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honour, glory and blessing. He receives all of these things. Why not? Because he needs them. No. Because as he receives them... He then gives them to us. He showers them on his people. He doesn't diminish from who he is. He doesn't take away from who he is. But he has these things in such abundance that he can give them out of himself. He showers them on us. He's a generous God who gives good gifts to his children. And then the vision continues. It points to the end time, that there'll be a day. Because not only are the angels involved in worshipping, but John sees a vision where every creature, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they're all repeating this refrain, this song, this melody, all of them singing. And John says it's a refrain, it's a melody, it's a chorus that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. The Lamb appears and his praise fills the cosmos. And lots of translations use this phrase, forever and ever and ever. And it's a beautiful phrase. And one that helps us and that we're even going to sing in a moment. It really helps. 
But there's some translation who use the phrase unto the ages of ages. Some say that it's better rendered that way. And I really like that phrase, unto the ages of ages. And I'll explain to you why. Unto the ages of ages suggests that happy ever after, I should say, is like, you know, forever and ever. Happy ever after. It's kind of seamless, endless time that keeps going and going. But ages suggests and indicates that time is broken down into chunks and sections. The land doesn't just kind of rule over this unbroken surface, but for every, all history, all the breaks, the ups and downs, every nook, every cranny. History is full of revolutions, with governments and kingdoms being overthrown. History is full of temporary victories. One football team might win a football league, Man City this year, but it will reset next season and then West Ham will win it. Um, It resets, another team wins. One government will rule. We'll win a vote. But a few years later, we'll vote again. A new government can come in. One king will live. One queen will live, but they'll die. A new king or queen will take their place. One kingdom might have dominion over another kingdom or over another nation, but then over time, that nation will overthrow it. We see history is full of it. But on the cross, Jesus won a victory that carries through the ages. He never grows old. He never passes out of fashion. Nothing can overthrow him. Nothing can stop him. He'll never be knocked off his throne. He is conquered for all time. The grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't beat him. He is the cross, the head of Satan. Unto the ages, he's the one who is and who comes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is the lion-like lamb who is excellent in every sense. The only one worthy to take the scroll and bring this world to an end and usher in a new one. For the glory of his name and for the good of us, his ransomed people. And friends, today we rejoice because we can be in that number. We can be one of the ransomed who enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, who enjoy the new heavens and new earth without sin or curse. And we can only do that if we trust him as our Lamb, Submit to him as our lion and join the four living creatures, the 24 elders and millions of angels to worship him with our whole heart. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor, glory and power. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray and we're going to worship him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you did not spare your own son, but that you gave him up as a lamb for us to be slain. We thank you that he's the worthy one, the risen one, the exalted one, the victorious one, the only one who could open the scroll. And Lord, our only response, all we can do is come and fall at your feet, is bow before you, is lift our hands to you, is fall face down, is to exalt your name, to give our lives to worship and praise you. Because you alone, you alone are worthy of honour and glory. We pray these things in the precious name of our Lamb. Amen.